I'm Marty Moscowain. Welcome to The Connection. On June 17, 1971, President Richard Nixon announced that his administration was declaring an all-out offensive on drug abuse, calling it public enemy number one. The war on drugs, as it came to be known, criminalized drug users and led to mass incarceration and more punitive sentencing, which largely impacted the poor, people of color, and the vulnerable. Now, more than 50 years later, the drug epidemic shows little or no sign of letting up. 100,000 Americans die every year from drug overdose. So is it time to declare an end to Nixon's war? And if punitive criminal measures don't work, what does? Our guest, Maya Salovitz, says an approach called harm reduction shows real promise. Rather than punishing drug users, it gives them a chance to connect to services that are safer, more effective, and cheaper than using law enforcement. That's what she wrote this week in the New York Times. She's the author of Undoing Drugs, which is about harm reduction, and before that, a book called Unbroken Brain about her struggles with drug addiction. And Maya Salovitz, it's nice to talk to you again. It's been about seven years, so thanks for joining us. Likewise, thank you. You're very welcome. And I do want to begin with you because I think you are that unique and rare person who can talk about drug addiction, both as a writer and a journalist, and also as a former user. In fact, uh, when I spoke to you seven years ago, we spent a lot of time talking about your own struggles with addiction. You were addicted uh, during college to both heroin and cocaine. You were shooting up multiple times a day. As you think back on your life back then, what did the drugs give you that you didn't have and that you wanted? Sure. So um, it was, you know, I don't think I ever would have gotten into cocaine if it hadn't been the 80s. Um, But um, it was really the heroin that, like, hooked me the hardest because it made me feel, like, warm, safe, and loved and as though I belonged and um, one of the things we now know about the um, natural opioids in our brain and the receptors for them is that they're basically there to connect us to the people we love and to give us that loving feeling that you get you know, when you're with a partner or even a friend or your mom and dad or your kid. You just feel like safe and good and comfortable when you have that connection with them. And then you feel bad and anxious and awful if you don't. And for whatever reason, um, as a kid, I just felt really disconnected from people. Um, I later found out that I am on the autism spectrum, and that was probably had a lot to do with it because I was just kind of overwhelmed by my sensory experience. And I kind of led into um, sort of intellectual obsessions that were not of interest to other people until I got to drugs, and they were. Um, so... Um, but you know, I just felt like I just felt like my friends weren't really my friends. That like people maybe pretended to care about me, and maybe the best I could do was like to become really successful, so people would like pretend to like me. And when you think about living with that level of self hatred, it's just awful, hmm. um, you know. And it really, I, even when I say it now, I can just remember and like, you know, just feel compassion for that self that felt that bad. Um, but you know, the, the drugs like gave me relief from that. You say that most people who try drugs, whether uh, opioids or 
heroin or even cocaine and, and, and some of these other drugs, most people do not get addicted, but that it's people on the extremes, either people who are anxious, perhaps like the way you were, or people who are risk takers, who are most at risk for addiction. Why is that? Well, it's it's because when you don't fit in, if you're on an extreme by definition, you're not sort of fitting in with everybody else because you're very different. And so um, for the risk takers, it's kind of a more obvious thing because drugs are risky. Um, and you see this develop in teenagers, particularly teenage boys who just want to sort of show the world that they're daring and courageous. And, you know, that's where a lot of our ideas about why people use drugs comes from. Um, the sort of self-medication part has always been kind of blurred over. Um, and even if you're a person who's sort of risk-seeking, that might be a form of self-medication because you may be tuned up, like anxious people are kind of tuned up so that like everything overstimulates us and we want to chill. Um, but other people have the opposite thing where nothing stimulates them and they need more. And so um, those folks tend to be more attracted to stimulants and the people um, who are sort of looking for a chill are more attracted to opioids and other depressants like alcohol. But anyway, most of the time these days, people end up using a variety of substances um, in part because they have no choice the way our drug mm. supply is right now, but also because um, you kind of want different things at different times. You also talk about, and this makes sense if you, if one thinks about it, that trauma, especially retre uh, repeated trauma and the kind of despair and hopelessness that can come from trauma really does put people at risk for addiction. Exp flesh that out for us. Sure. So, um, you know, most trauma is kind of relational. Like if you think about something like child abuse, the people who are supposed to be taking care of you are instead harming you. Um, and they're not giving you that warm, safe place to be. Um, so that's kind of one obvious example. But just losing a parent or having a parent go to prison or having a parent with like mental illness or a natural disaster, like there's so many different ways that things can go wrong and we can just feel completely severed from our connections with with others. And, you know, when when something gives you like a decent simulation of that, of course, it's going to be attractive to people who are traumatized and people with PTSD in particular, um, sometimes they're just dissociated from the world and they want like a connection to it that like, you know, brings them in. So they might want a stimulant in those, you know, and that kind of it mimics the state, the sort of over aroused state that you sometimes get in if you have been traumatized. Conversely, the opioids do very nicely to make you dissociate and distance. So depending on the drug, obviously you're going to get a different kind of reaction. As you mentioned, heroin, um, and you were doing these speedballs, this mix of heroin and cocaine, but it made you feel safe. It made you feel loved. It made you feel connected. But at some point, and I remember you describing yourself when you were really at, at rock bottom, you weighed about 80 pounds, and you, you know, you look terrible and your, your health yeah. was really, really compromised. Did you not see yourself the way others saw you back then? No. And I mean, I like, that was like a big part of the problem because 
my parents actually did love me and care about me and were really worried. And, um, you know, my friends actually did like me and were also very concerned. Um, and, you know, I don't know if there was like some kind of anorexic piece of that. Um, but, um, you know, there's a thing where this world likes very, very insanely skinny women. Yeah. Um, and I, I don't know if I like felt prey to that, but, um, I certainly was deluded about how I looked and, you know, how sick I was. In fact, there was a day, I remember you saying there was sort of a moment in your life when you realized, I'm addicted to drugs. I have a problem. And it's it's interesting to think about those moments in one's life. What do you think it was about that, either that day or what you were doing or who you're with or where you were that something flashed? I mean, and it's it's really hard to say, and this is why I actually try to avoid the term rock bottom, because that's only a term that can be defined retrospectively. So if you think about it, like the only way you know you hit bottom is if afterwards you successfully stay in recovery, right? right. Otherwise, you're constantly getting to new bottoms, one of which could be death. The other thing we know is that um, actually stressful and you know, humiliating experiences make you more likely to want to get high rather than to quit. So, you know, if you think about it, who's more likely to get into recovery? Somebody who's like rich and has um, a family and has a very meaningful career and has like everything going for them um, or somebody who is homeless and has no education and no friends and no alternatives. Um, I'm going to go with the rich guy in that situation. And that's what the reality, you know, that's what the research shows that actually the people who get better tend to be people with resources. And so, um, you know, for me, that particular moment, um, I just realized that I met my own personal definition of addiction, which I had sort of carefully crafted to avoid meeting. Um, and that I was like about to do something that I would find really uncomfortable in order to get drugs. And I was just like, you know, I've seen that happen to other people. And when that happens to them, they do things that they feel bad about to get drugs and then they can't enjoy the drugs anymore. They don't provide the relief anymore. And I need help because I'm in that situation. And so, you know, I had a certain level of despair, but also a certain level of hope because I knew um, that I had a court date the next day and that was not giving me hope. But the fact that my parents, my dad was going to be there and he would take me to my mom so I could find treatment because she'd obviously been saying you should get help for a long time. Um, so uh, it was, um, you know, I, I sort of, you know, I had always been really scared of treatment because unfortunately there's a horrible amount of awful treatment in the United States that really treats people very cruelly. But at that point I was just like, I've got to do something and hopefully we can find somewhere good. And, you know, thankfully uh, we were able to find somewhere that like, although I have some disagreements with their model of treatment, it was not humiliating and um, attacking for the most part. And as you mentioned, you had a family that, that obviously loved you, cared about you, and you had family treatment at this at this facility. And at one point, your brother said to you, um, and these were pretty powerful words to you, I never got to know you, um, which is a powerful bid for connection. Yes, yes. No, and I mean... Um, uh, my brother and I are a lot closer now. Um, Good. I'm glad and, to hear that. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, and, and he was like, I mean, he was a little kid at that point. Um, and it just broke my heart because like, I didn't want that to be the case. Like, I didn't want to not connect to people. I just really didn't know how. And you didn't know how. And, and do you feel like now, and we're about a minute from our break here, but do you feel now you do know how to connect? I'm a lot better. And a lot of it has to do with the fact that um, some of my sensory, I've learned to manage with antidepressants and other things, some of the sort of sensory overload that I'm prone to, so I can be more present. And and that just helps you sort of manage both, I guess, your your biochemistry, but also something you can learn from? Yeah, exactly. Because like, if you are so overwhelmed by distress, whether it's yours or someone else's, like you're going to flee rather than actually being able to like help. And when you're not like that, you can be there and be there for other people as well as for yourself. Well, I'll tell you what, let's take that very short break and then we'll get back to our conversation with Maya Salovitz. And we are talking about her uh, problems with addiction, something that she was able to get through treatment and therapy and support and her own dogged work as well. And uh, she's written several books, one called Undoing Drugs, and it's subtitled The Untold Story of Harm Reduction and the Future of Addiction, something that we will talk about. And she wrote a book a couple of years ago called Unbroken Brain. Again, much more after this very short break. Do stay with us. We'll be right back. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. You're listening to The Connection here on WHYY in Philadelphia. I'm Marty Moss-Cohen talking with Maya Salovitz. She has unique experience on drug addiction as a former user, as she has been describing to us. She's also a journalist who covers addiction and drug policy. And she says the current war on drugs is essentially an abject failure. We're talking, and we will be talking in more detail, about an approach called harm reduction that promotes public health over law enforcement. You say, and I think a lot, most people would agree with you, there are a lot of myths and misconceptions about drug addiction. One is that people with addiction have no choice. They are at the mercy of whatever drug that they are addicted to. Why is that wrong? It's just more complicated than that. It's, I mean, I think the best analogy is like if you're in love with somebody or you've just had a kid and that completely rearranges your priorities. You're going to do everything in your power to make sure if you had a kid to make sure the kid's okay and to take care of them. And, you know, you might neglect your friends. You are going to, you know, be very interested in diapers in a way that you were not previously. <laughs> you are going to be very interested in sleep in a way that you are not previously. Um, you know, it, it's just like your priorities are changed. And with drugs, what happens is that kind of obsession gets focused towards a drug rather than, you know, a partner or a child. And so, you know, you may do very extreme things like just like, you know, people in love or people having affairs often do things that they would never otherwise do. Um, and so, but it's not as though, you know, people go around like, oh, let me go and shoot up in front of the cops, you mm. know, um, or, uh, you know, 
uh, people plan very precisely to make sure that they can get the drugs that they need. And that is not like being a zombie. Um, it's just, it's about impairment of your decision-making, not elimination of that. And that, that's really important because when we see people as having no decision-making ability, we just treat them like children or criminals. And we assume that um, we know best and we can do everything you know, to change them. And perhaps only force is the thing that's gonna work to change them. Um, and when we sort of dehumanize people with addiction like that um, by sort of seeing them as zombies, um, we end up with all kinds of policies that end up being really harmful. Because the reality is that like, um, what changes people's pathways in addiction is kindness and hope and a sense of meaning and purpose. And you can't really force people to find a sense of meaning and purpose in their lives. Like, it's like you may end up finding something um, that you like, um, but if we sort of force everybody into, let's say, religion, some people will find that helpful, but a lot of people won't. Um, so it's really important to um, treat people with addiction as human beings and meet them where they are. And there's this big fear that if we do that, if we so-called enable them, um, that if, if you know if we're nice, oh, they would never stop using because it's so fun. I would like you to take a look at the people that you see with addiction um, that you probably see, you know, on the streets around you. I don't think anybody looks at that and says, "That's what I want to be when I grow up." That person looks super happy and like they're having a great time, right? Because that is not what you know. And I mean, once you're addicted getting even the relief that you originally got out of drugs is extraordinarily difficult. Um, it is not that people with addiction are just like having so much fun that they would never stop. The thing is they don't know how to stop and they don't know that it is possible to feel okay in their own skin without the substance. They feel as though the only thing that makes life worth living is the drug. And so just taking that away or just making them feel even worse about themselves doesn't change that. You know, addiction is defined as compulsive drug use despite negative consequences. So by definition, punishment does not help. Um, but we've just thought, oh, if we just always, if we get more and more cruel, if we arrest them, if we break them down, if we attack them, that this will, you know, suddenly shake them up and make them want to stop using. I mean, to me, you know, social rejection and all that kind of stuff is what made me use. It was not going to make me want to stop. What would make me want to stop was a way to feel better and a way to feel okay and a way to like, um, you know, contribute and, and use, you know, whatever talents I have to be useful. Um, so, you know, just like sort of telling people that they're nothing unless they quit, um, doesn't really give them any motivation to quit. Um, if you and it in in a harm reduction setting, for example, if you if you go to say um, a syringe service program or any kind of like harm reduction program, um, people will greet you friendly, welcoming, and kindly. And if you're like a you know homeless person, um, you're mostly not greeted that way. 
Well, let me pick up on you because you, you, you put several things out there. Let me pick up on several of them. One having to do with harm reduction, which is what your most recent book is about and something that you are a proponent of. And you see a lot of promise um, in this approach that really came out of the AIDS crisis and your own experiences back in 1986 when you were told, you know, don't share your needles, uh, bleach them so that uh, you won't be getting AIDS, that, the, that there's a kind of um, approach to this kind of treatment that is helpful as opposed to harmful. Well, and I mean, I think like, you know, people were afraid that, oh, you know, if you teach people to clean their needles, that will encourage kids to start injecting or, you know, that sends the wrong message. And, you know, we just need to like have these people die so that kids know that drugs are bad. And that's a horrible way to treat people. But it's also just like that is not how people's brains work around um, this stuff. Um if the person who taught me to clean my needles had just said, you're at risk for AIDS, you're going to die, you got to stop now, I wouldn't have been able to stop now. Mm. I might have like been so shocked that I quit for a week. But, um, you know, 99% of people when they're trying to stop relapse at least once. Um, and so that relapse could have gotten me infected, right? So the, the critical thing um, is that if you give people a way to protect themselves, you know, dead people can't recover is a saying about this. Um, and but if you give people the ability to protect themselves, you will allow them a chance at recovery. And, you know, there's sort of all these ideas that like, for example, oh, you know, you give people free heroin, they'll never quit. And they will like, you know, their addiction will last longer and they will never find abstinence. And it will always be that they are, you know, stuck in this trap. In reality, when you look at the data on heroin prescribing from Switzerland and the UK and, and other places where they do it, what they find is that when people get stabilized on heroin, the longer they are in that treatment, the more likely they are to seek abstinence or more traditional medication treatments. So it does not keep people using longer. Um, when you look at the studies on needle exchange, people who participate five times more likely to get into treatment compared to people who don't participate. So it's basically a way of attracting people into the healthcare system and getting people to feel, hey, we value you exactly as you are. And that gives people the motivation to change, ironically, because if you feel valued when you previously have just felt horrible and useless, when you start to feel valued, you start to care about yourself a little more and then sort of, well, you know, how did you stop? How did you quit? You know, um, it just opens the door to conversations. And, you know, some people, for example, with extreme trauma are never going to be able to quit until they start addressing that trauma. But we have said, oh, we can't address your trauma unless you quit. And it just like traps people. Let me just quickly reintroduce you. That's uh, Maya Salovitz, our, our guest today on The Connection. We are talking about addiction and an approach to addiction that is called harm reduction. You got a little flavor of that. Let me just pick up on a, on a couple of things. Um, and, and you wrote about a couple of cities, including New York City and some other parts of the world where they have tried safe injection sites and, and some of these harm reduction policies. Here in Philadelphia, it's been a real kind of a hot potato having to do with safe injection site. As it stands now, there is none, in part because of community 
community pushback and concern. Uh, city council hasn't, you know, been able to to come up with a with a place or even a program that would work for this city. Um, it doesn't solve the drug problem right off the bat, but what does what does a safe injection site do? Well, it's funny because you would think that communities that have a lot of public drug use would actually want a safe injection site simply because the people will be using the drugs out of sight at that site, not in public where nobody wants to be using drugs and nobody else wants to see that, right? Um, The whole idea is to bring people into a safer place so that you can um, help them become as healthy as they are possible of being, right? And so if you, um, you know, the, the whole idea there is not like to sit around and say, shoot, 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 like, let's like get high as much as possible. We want you to like absolutely, you know, do the maximum amount of drugs. That's not what goes on in these places. What goes on there is we care about you. We don't want you to die. Um, can we, you know, help you do that in a safer way? Can we offer you treatment? The thing that people don't like is that when somebody shows up at a safe injection site, they don't immediately say, get treatment, get treatment, get treatment, mm. because that does not work. Like, it's like people sort of have this idea that um, if you're actively addicted, you've never thought about getting treatment and it wouldn't occur to you to like seek it. And that like, you're just so happy and it's all so good that like, well, of course I wouldn't, you know, that is just not how it is. The thing is, everybody in your life is constantly telling you to get treatment and you're afraid of it or you don't think it will work or you've had a bad experience in the past. There's a million reasons why people don't, but you can't find out what those barriers are unless you get to know that person. And when you get to know that person by being non-judgmental and by like just being like, hey, we care, we want you to be okay, then you open the door for all that kind of stuff. But if you just sort of you know say, get treatment, get treatment, they're gonna think you're saying go away. Well, as you mentioned, um, you know, treatment runs the gamut. There's there's excellent treatment out there. As you said, you got good treatment. You didn't agree with all of it. Um, and there's a lot of really poor quality treatment. So let's say someone, you know, decides that they want treatment, but they go to a place where either they are um, yelled at or criticized or not felt welcome. Then what happens to them? Well, exactly. And I mean, we know like there's, you know, for many years, we had the idea that like, well, we just need to break this horrible personality down in these people with addiction. And they're so antisocial that the only thing that will get through to them is like screaming at them and keeping them up all night and like, you know, um, publicly humiliating them and calling them a baby and calling them much worse names than that. Um, you know, and this idea ironically came out of a cult. Um, but it became very popular in addiction treatment because everybody's angry at people with addiction. Um, but you know, yeah, that basically re-traumatizes people who've already been traumatized and already been yelled at a lot and already, you know, had a lot of humiliation often. Um, there's sexual harassment that can come with that, um, particularly for women. Um, so, you know, if you go into treatment and the whole thing is aimed at telling you you're a bad person and, and breaking you down, who would want to go to that? No one would want to go to that. Um, you know, no one in their right mind would want to go to that or in your not right mind, right? Um, what you want and what actually is helpful is people being supportive, being kind, um, and helping figure out like, 
okay, what's behind this? Like, do you have depression? Do you, are you on the autism spectrum? Um, are you bipolar? Um, you know, uh, did you never get a high school education? Um, you know, when you find out like what it is that is like sort of keeping this person's life off track, then you can help them find the way to find themselves and find a purpose for themselves and reconnect. Um, but if you're just sort of seeing them as the problem, you know, asking like, you know, um, what's wrong with you rather than what happened to you, um, you're not going to uh, make the kind of progress that you could if you come from a welcoming place. And we recognize this in the rest of medicine. Like we don't tell depressed people you're a horrible person and you need to just snap out of it. That's not what therapy for depression looks like because that does not work. I, I do know families, and I certainly have interviewed families where a, a, a family member has a serious drug addiction and, and you know, they go down the, the kind of spiral, the family goes with them. You mentioned anger, frustration, you know, feeling as if they have lost this child uh, that they cared so much about. Um, and from them, um, to imagine their child going to a safe ejection site so that they can shoot up the drug that has created the problems in their life, that's a struggle, it seems to me, for families. Absolutely. Um, the thing is that um, there are a lot of families that are now involved in the harm reduction movement that recognize that, hey... I want my kid alive above all. Um, and no one has ever, there are 200 overdose prevention site, safe injection places um, in the world. Nobody has ever died of an overdose at mm. one. Is that the goal uh, though, not to die? Well, that's the first, if you're dead, you're not going to recover, right? right truly. Um, and, and so, you know, I mean, and I also don't know a single family that would not, if they had the choice, if their kid was, to be smoking pot every day or injecting heroin every day would not pick the smoking pot, right? Sure. You know, the problem is that we let the perfect be the enemy of the good. Um, and what harm reduction says is that if you do that, you are going to actually um, make people more likely to die, more likely to have very bad health consequences that will prevent recovery. So, you know, families that I have talked to that are um, active in harm reduction, especially parents who've lost kids, um, you know, they recognize that the first thing you have to do is save the life. Huh. Um, and that what I mean, the thing is, like, people think, oh, it's a trade off, like we have to, like, uh, save, um, you know, we can either save you or we can put you into beautiful, brilliant abstinence. No, the you know, sometimes it's a matter of the person's either going to be dead or actively using. And it doesn't, being kind to them and providing safe injection or even free heroin does not make the period of time in which they are using as opposed to recovering longer. Let me ask you a question. Do we know whether harm reduction, does it reduce drug use or is it better at just preventing either death or, or, you know, serious illness? It's both. Like, it makes you more likely to get into more traditional recovery, and it makes you more likely to reduce the harm associated with drugs. Like, there is no trade-off there. If there were a trade-off, the research would show that if you give people free heroin, they just stay on free heroin forever, and they never get better. And that's not what happens. 
um, you know, we just have this sort of intuitive idea that like, well, if you get exact, you know, we give them heroin, give them exactly what they want. Like, of course, they'd never stop. Well, if you think about what actually happens to you when you get the thing that you hmm. think is going to fix you, like for me, at certain points, it's been success. I feel like, oh, look, I'm writing for the New York Times. So now I'm going to be super happy, you know, um, it Life doesn't, doesn't work, work that way. Yeah, right. It doesn't work that way at all. And it's even that's even true with heroin. Um, and so, but we just can't comprehend this because we've sort of so mystified the idea of these drugs. Well, I'll tell you what, let's take another short break and then we'll get back to our conversation. That's Maya Solovitz, our guest today on The Connection. We are talking about addiction, something she knows about from her own personal experience. She's also written a lot about addiction and about drug policy and about this approach to addiction called harm reduction. Her most recent book is titled Undoing Drugs, and she wrote a book uh, about six or seven years ago uh, called Unbroken Brain. We're going to take a very short break and then get back to our conversation. Do stay with us. Much more. You're listening to The Connection here on WHYY in Philadelphia, and I'm talking with Maya Solovitz about drug addiction, drug policy, and something called harm reduction. Maya, I want to read about read just a couple sentences that you wrote in the New York Times this week about harm reduction. You say harm reduction cannot solve all drug-related problems. It's called harm reduction, not harm elimination because it recognizes that humans will always engage in some degree of risky behavior. Supervised consumption sites also do not provide safer substances, which means they don't address dealing or unregulated or impure concoctions sold illegally. And then you go on to say what they do offer is respite and a chance to connect to services that are safer, more effective, and cheaper than using law enforcement. And I wonder whether you think, you know, as we sort of toggle between the war on drugs and and harm reduction and other programs, whether we think this is going to be the panacea, and obviously nothing is. Yeah, I mean, I think what's important is there's two ways to look at harm reduction. One is harm reduction is a philosophy. Um, it's the idea in drug policy that we should be focusing on reducing harm, not trying to stop people from ever getting high, right? And when you set policy through that lens, it can't be a bad thing because if you are succeeding empirically in reducing harm, you are succeeding empirically in reducing harm, right? Um, uh, but when you look at, you know, okay, there are these specific techniques like syringe service programs or safe injection sites or, or these other things, like that aspect could never be the whole thing. But if on a broader sense, any kind of help that people want that is supportive and evidence-based can be considered harm reduction. So that encompasses everything from abstinence to housing to whatever. So it's, you know, I mean, sure, like having a um, overdose prevention site isn't going to cure homelessness, um, but neither is addiction treatment. Um, you know, what we need for that is housing. Right. So it's, you know, it's, it's important to, you know, look at, you know, um, what we mean by these terms and in what context, you know, we're using it because the idea that there is harm reduction and there is treatment and they are enemies is not the case. 
harm reduction refers people to abstinence and more traditional medication treatment all the time, every single day. Well, let me talk about medication treatment because it seems like there is a lot of promise there. I guess the idea of substituting, you know, one drug in a sense for another. And gosh, you turn on your TV and they're, you know, they're commercials for drugs just all day long. What is the resistance to stuff like methadone or heroin assisted treatment? Well, see, it's like substituting one drug for another sounds bad, right? Um, a lot of people think they're substituting one addiction for another, and that's because they don't understand the definition of addiction. Mm. Like addiction is compulsive drug use despite negative consequences. If you provide something like methadone, which you, you know, if you take that at the same time every day in the same dose, you get a complete tolerance to the intoxicating effects or the high, right? And so what that means is you couldn't tell if I was on 200 milligrams of methadone right now. I could, if I were a person who drove, I could drive, I could um, work, I could do whatever I'm doing, and you would never know because I am completely tolerant to the intoxicating effects if I'm taking the same dose every day. So that basically means that I have replaced addiction, which is the compulsive use part, right. with simply physically needing a substance to avoid withdrawal. And if the substance isn't harming me, it's a clean, safe substance, and um, I don't have bad side effects, and the good side effects are that I get my life back, um, why is that any different than relying on an antidepressant or a blood pressure medication, right? So the thing that people don't understand is when they see somebody on, say, methadone or buprenorphine, which is also known as Suboxone, and they see them sitting there nodding out or something, they think that, oh, like, that is... Um, you know, that's that's the methadone or suboxone. And that means that like, you know, they're just high all the time. When you see that what is happening is people are using additional substances or they are not on the right dose huh. or they're using irregularly. And the thing is, even if you are using additional substances and you're taking methadone or buprenorphine, um, your overdose risk is dramatically reduced. Like we know that staying on either of these medications, even if you do continue sometimes to use other substances, cuts your risk of dying in half. Um, and, you know, if we had that for cancer, we'd be ecstatic, right? Um, so, you know, but it's like, no, we get into, oh, you're just substituting one addiction for another. No, you aren't. Because a lot of people who are on these medications um, are just as functional and you know, in good shape as anybody else, the other people who are still using additional substances are still having harm reduced because they are much less risk of dying. Um, and so, you know, just sort of understanding that there's sort of two different ways to use these medications um, is really important because otherwise you can just look at it and you could go and like hang out outside a methadone clinic and you see all these people who look like they're still using because they are still using. Um, the thing that you don't see if you hang out outside of a methadone clinic is the people who like walk in and go out after five minutes and go to work and look just like everybody else. And those are the people who are stabilized and doing well. And those are the people who won't talk to you because they're so stigmatized because of the other people. Wow, that's fascinating. Let me ask you about fentanyl. And there, of course, is a, a, a crisis of, of fentanyl overdose and deaths because of fentanyl. My understanding is that it's it's cheaper uh, than, than, than opioids. 
But do you see that as a result of the fact that there's been a crackdown on opioids for, I think, pretty obvious reasons, but then that has left people who have been addicted to painkillers then turning to fentanyl and, and putting their lives truly at risk? Yeah, I mean, I think there's some important pieces of this here. 80% of the people who misused prescription opioids did not have a prescription for them when they started. In other words, these were people who were recreationally using a variety of drugs, typically, like 80% of them had also used, say, cocaine or methamphetamine, right? So this is not a group of pain patients. This is a group of people who use drugs, and they happen to be able to get them out of the medical system at that time because prescribing was much looser, right? Right. Um, and then when, you know, prescribing got cut back, I mean, it's been cut by over 50% since I think around 2011, when that happened, instead of treating those people who we had the names of, we knew who those people were because you have to use your real name in order to get the prescription out of the pharmacy. Um, instead of treating them, we were just like, oh, we'll just stop the supply and that will solve this. And then what we did was we left a lot of genuine pain patients in a lot of pain and gave them no alternatives. And a lot of people with addiction and pain or just plain old people with addiction with um, you know, uh, nowhere to go. And surprise, surprise, the Mexican gangsters come in and uh, you know, find a nice new market. So how can you like um it was just so stupid what we did? Like, why would you cut the supply of something that you know people are addicted to? And not provide any help for them and then say, oh, fentanyl just came along naturally. It was like the next wave. This was not natural. This was a policy choice. But does that also tell us what we, gen we meaning broadly speaking, we think about drug users? Absolutely. I mean, it's it's like it's very weird because, you know, in some sense, it kind of implies that we don't believe that addiction exists. And I've never met a person with addiction who, oh, I couldn't get a supply from one source, so I quit. Like, that's never a story I've heard in, you know, 30 years of reporting on this, right? I mean, perhaps there's somewhere out there that someone out there that that happened to. Um, but, you know, the vast majority of time, people with addiction, because they are addicted, make sure that they have multiple sources. Um, and if one gets cut off, they go to another one. Um, you know, so it is, um, you know, it's, it's just, yeah, like we... We don't care about people with addiction. We don't care about people with pain. The neglect of chronic pain patients who did benefit from opioids and are now like curled up in a ball somewhere and often suicidal um, is horrific to me. I feel like some of the opioid settlement money absolutely should have gone to pain patients, mm. um, you know, some of whom did not benefit from opioids and some of whom did, neither of which we cared about. Um, but yeah, like we just, you know, I mean, unfortunately, we have this attitude in this country that you're just on your own, you know, whether it comes to drugs or childcare or elder care or whatever. I wonder if there isn't something also perverse, because it does seem like certain drugs become popular in waves and then another drug takes over, whether fentanyl's course will be cut short because sadly, tragically, so many people are dying from fentanyl. Well, I mean, I think like that's something that we really haven't thought about as much as we should. Um, if you look at and this is here's where the good news is. If you look at the numbers of young people um, trying opioids, whether prescription or um, heroin or, you know, street, whatever it is, that is 
I think it's down something like 80 percent. It's it's really low. Wow. The reason we still see teenagers dying sometimes is because what's out there is so deadly. And because oftentimes these pills are not, you know, they look like Oxycontin, but they're actually fentanyl. Um, so, um, you know, uh, but the good news is, right, new people are not coming into that market. Um, and the um, older ones, this is the bad news, are just dying because it's so deadly. Um, and so, yeah, like eventually um, that market is going to, you know, die off or become radically, radically smaller. Um, and, you know, historically in this country, we have waves of, you know, okay, everybody's really into opioids. Now they're really into stimulants. Now they're really, into, you know, you got the 70s, you got heroin, you got the right. 80s, you got cocaine, you got the 90s, you got heroin again. Like it tends to go in these like 10 year waves. Um, you know, these things, um, change for reasons both of fashion and both you know you look at your older sister and they got messed up on that well i'm not going to try that let me try this um instead of recognizing that you know people use drugs for reasons and let's try to minimize those reasons we're just like well this drug is bad well not that one or we don't mention that one or you know people hear it as like that's the really bad one i'll avoid that one you know and so we have these generational waves of things you know simply because of that a couple of weeks ago, I was walking in, in Philadelphia and I saw a, a man standing on a street corner, clearly high. He was, it looked like he was going to just tip into the traffic. He was so unsteady on his feet. And I have to say, I mean, clearly he was high on something. Um, and as just a human being, you know, I walked by him. I didn't, I didn't do anything. I didn't say anything. I didn't call 911. You know, I didn't, I didn't do anything to help him. And I just wonder as, as human beings, what do, what do we owe these people that we see on the streets? I mean, yeah, that's like, that's really the question, isn't it? Like, um, you know, um, it, you know, all of us in cities do this all the time. We walk yeah. past people who are clearly in desperate need um, and, you know, to be fair, we can't all help everyone. Um, but I think as a society, we can just do so much better. Like we actually, for a lot of this stuff, we actually know what would work. We just don't do it. And what works is, as, as you have described during this hour, is caring treatment, um, the idea of not vilifying people who are drug users, finding one drug that is probably less dangerous than another and starting that substitution process that's i mean that you know and also like um a really important thing is providing housing um for people um who are not yet ready to quit hmm. because you know when you're homeless and actively using it's really difficult to quit while staying homeless but then a lot of the places you know that you want to go to they require abstinence and you can't get in and so we really need places where we can um it's called you know housing first or permanent supportive housing and we know that like 85 percent of people like that guy that you saw you know nodding out on the street 85 percent of people if you offer those services will accept them and oftentimes you know they may not get sober immediately but they tend to get better over time and then they aren't out in the street risking their lives like that. Um, and they aren't, um, you know, uh, like scaring people. I wonder, we talk a lot about this sort of epidemic of, of loneliness. It's been, you know, sort of earned that that title. 
Um, does that help us understand the drug epidemic connection between loneliness and and drug abuse? Absolutely, drug use? because it's absolutely like especially opioids because opioids give you that that feeling that we all get when we feel socially connected. Now, some people, you know, people's responses to drugs are widely varied, so some people don't have that experience. But the people um, who are at highest risk of addiction, what they get from opioids is like, ah, I'm safe, I'm home, I'm okay, it's all good, like, you love me. Um, you know, and obviously, that's what we all want. Um, you know, we obviously prefer it to come from another human being and our communities and, you know, our families and our partners and all of this. Um, you know, and I do think that, you know, inequality is very much linked with rising rates of um, drug use and, and severe drug problems. Um, if we want to be a more connected and healthy society, we have to address that. We have to care about each other more and, you know, um, not say like, okay, well, you have a kid, like, no, we're not going to provide daycare. We're not going to like, you know, help you with that. Um, you know, we're like, it's just like, we're just so cruel. And we just like, think everybody should be on their own. And nobody is better off that way. You told my producer, uh, Debbie Builder, that the opposite of addiction is connection, not sobriety. Yes, that um, uh, I credit uh, Johan Hari uh, developed that saying. And I think that is, um, I think there's a great truth in that. Um, I think it's also important, you know, it's not the case that all you need is love. Like love is super <laughs> important, but sometimes you might need medication or housing or other things as well. Um, but without love and without feeling connected and purposeful, it is almost impossible to recover. Well, we have to leave it there. And I thank you, Maya Salovitz, for joining us today on The Connection, talking about this really important issue. Thank you so much. Thank you. You're very welcome. And again, she's got a couple of books, one called Undoing Drugs, The Untold Story of Harm Reduction and the Future of Addiction. A couple of years ago, she wrote another book, mostly about herself, called Unbroken Brain. Go to whyy.org slash the connection to find out more about the program. You can always download a podcast of the show wherever you get your podcasts. Al Banks, the engineer for today's edition of The Connection, the show produced by Debbie Builder and Paige Murray Bessler. I'm Marty Moscow Wayne. Thank you so much for joining us.